You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hi, this is John Spirosavet, and I'm here again with Rebecca Rosenthal. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, John. So nice to be back. Yeah, this is a real milestone, I think, for the podcast because it's the first one we're recording after the High Holy Days and releasing after the High Holy Days. And it's really proof of concept that the themes of the show and of Chuva generally are not just for the Elul Tishrei season, the season. Uh, wrapped around the high holidays, but for all year. So, um, and for any of you who might be listening to this, not as it's coming out, this is a perfect time. Whatever time you're listening is the perfect time to be listening. People have asked me, like, how could you be adding a new venture to your life as a rabbi around the high holidays? But I have told people that this actually enhanced my my holy days. And I'm actually wondering for you, Rebecca, have you been thinking since you've uh, more intentionally maybe been rewatching The Good Place, has it stirred any new thoughts for you the last few weeks? Not to start at the end of this episode, but the moment when Eleanor basically can't take the guilt anymore and she stands up and she says, it's me. For me, the interesting thing about that moment is she was able to withstand Janet and her pleading and Michael's very graphic description of what would happen to him in his retirement. But there was something about, about that last moment and about looking at Chidi and just how racked with guilt he was about, about the lie that, that pushed her over the edge. And this question of sort of on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we stand up and we literally out loud proclaim all the things we did that we're wrong, right? We all have that Eleanor moment. What are the things in our lives that would make us take it seriously enough to really say like, I've done something and it was really bad and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell everyone about it because I know it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's, it's really great that you say that. I was thinking about the contrast, as I say, we're recording this the day after Yom Kippur between how the Torah describes the original Yom Kippur, where the high priest would go in and confess. Presumably he had to say, like on the spot, think of what things to confess. And the way we do it in the synagogue is we're we're furnished with a list. And I'd have to make myself say, okay, if I was making the list today, what would I say? And of course, it isn't God who has to hear it. But as you're saying, it's the, the, the people who, who Eleanor is embedded with. That's really great. So you want to take us right in there. This uh, episode in the in the show is called The Eternal Shriek. And why don't you give us a summary? Sure. Eleanor considers Michael's belief that he is the neighborhood's problem and thus should retire and leave to be a win-win situation as Michael will get the retirement he deserves and she will no longer have to worry about being caught. Chidi disagrees because he is opposed to lying in all forms. He flashes back to a lie he told on earth when he complimented a colleague's hideous boots and one lie led to another. At Tahani's retirement party, the neighborhood learns about the eternal shriek in which Michael's soul will be disintegrated and each molecule placed on the face of a unique burning sun. And then his essence will be scooped out of his body and poured over hot diamonds. And it doesn't say that in the summary, but Tahani was like, the diamonds sound nice. To save Michael from this fate, Eleanor decides they should deactivate Janet, who is the only one who can order a train to take Michael away. Even though Janet is not human, her protests in the face of death are extremely realistic. Chidi ends up deactivating her, and Janet appears on a neighborhood-wide broadcast, declaring that she has been murdered. At the town meeting, Eleanor stands up and announces that she is the source of all the problems since she was brought to the good place by mistake. 
This is such an awesome episode. Well, I'll tell you that I chose it because it's called The Eternal Shriek. And one of my favorite uh, websites is the website introduced to me by Rabbi Ari Lorge, who should definitely come on this podcast as a guest. It is called Scream Into the Void. I believe it came from John Oliver. And you go to the website, Scream Into the Void, and uh, you can scream whatever you want, and it will scream back, and it will take your Whatever frustration you're feeling, it will take it into the void. And so the eternal shriek reminded me of that. And I just felt like we were kindred spirits, me and this episode. Uh, in the episode, uh, Janet is, uh, I think, has to, or decide, or, I don't know, what is it? Michael asks her to uh, imitate or prompts her somehow to imitate what human human crying is like. That's a great moment when she, you know, she, she says she doesn't, have any emotions. And I think one of the great things about Darcy Carden as an actress is she says she's Janet and she's a robot and she doesn't have any emotions, but she's actually excellent at, at really portraying the Janet robot, not human uh, being as someone who really does. And over the course of the series gains a lot of emotions. But I have to say, I do love the Janet in this episode where she's just like, hello, 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 over and over. It's a great gag. There, it really is. And the, I think this is the we've been anticipating the the real Janet bursting out, I guess, into the show. And this is in a way Janet's, uh, I don't know, emergence episode. And uh, and really the way that Janet describes all of these horrendous things that could happen uh, to her, particularly with the same trademark smile on her face. And then but there are a couple of times, I think, where she she has the blankness. Yes, she knows her A.B. Janet's as a. Eleanor says, yes. but Janet can't <laughs> recite the alphabet. And I really have to recommend, I believe this is the episode of the official NBC Good Place podcast where Darcy Carden is interviewed and they talk about the filming of this scene of her murder where uh, you can see, for instance, the way they're filming it, that the water of the, the sea is coming and they're like trying to get this in before the water, uh, you know, over you know, crashes over the set and also just how many face plants she had to do in order to get that that take right. And I think there probably were other like lines. It was kind of one of those improv line-a-rama things where along with like the the picture for the Nickelodeon Kids Award thing, which was which is so funny. I mean, I think we say this in every episode, but all the acting on the show is just brilliant. And she is particularly brilliant at at playing Janet, who if you kind of described her as a robot who knew everything, you would never picture the the way Darcy Carden embodies her really, truly. She is Janet and she gives her such human qualities, even though she's not supposed to be a human being. Yeah, this imitation of like begging for her life is, you know, which is this horrifying scenario. She makes hilarious. It's really the same, you know, and she can snap back and forth between, hi, I'm Janet, let me tell you what I'm, doing all of these things are just a mechanism to prevent an accidental reboot and um and suddenly we it's like the first time we see her not in her smiley regular janet voice it's it's very interesting actually if you look at janet and michael to think about what does this show think human beings are really about right janet as her failsafe plays on our human emotions and right that we would never kill someone hopefully who's begging you for their life and showing you pictures of, of their children. And then someone in contrast, you have Michael, who at his retirement party is like, I wanted to get my hair wet, 
and pull a hamstring and get a rewards <laughs> card and eat a saltine, right? And, and that there are both these sort of complex emotions, but also these kind of little things that we don't really think about that, that make us very human. Yeah. I loved how Michael's thing about the, the saltine and his comment, I think, was very dry, which I think was the same comment that, that Chidi's colleague maybe made about his eternally endless manuscript, very dry. Maybe I was talking with uh, Audrey in one of our earlier episodes that, um, you know, as a person who is not particularly tall, I'm just fascinated by actors who are, and Ted Danson certainly is, and the combination of his you know, the way he towers and yet these kind of also the way he creates smallness, whether it's with, his, you know, his sadness and all of that. It's just very, to me, it's very gripping and interesting how he how he plays off that contrast. I mean, he is so morose in this episode and yet he's so funny and kind of physical in the way he does it. Yeah. And I think I have already said in this episode, very brilliant very brilliant actors, but something about sort of the way he carries himself, where he seems not fully comfortable in his, in his own, in his own body. And then, you know, when he goes to Tahani and she's planning this retirement party and he's like, wait, I have to tell you what my retirement is really going to be, is really going to be like. And then she has to switch the whole entire party to be very sad and somber. Although I did notice that one of the things that she serves at her sad and somber party is black and white cookies. And I was like, black and white cookies are the best. You should not serve those at a sad and somber party, maybe because they're like dark colored. But I was I was upset on behalf of the black and white cookies that that's what got served. But I love the Michael Pinata at the original the original version of the party. It was so grotesquely, you know, not looking like him. Also, I mean, I don't know if you've been to a child's birthday party lately, but pinatas are very hard for children to break. They're very difficult. I haven't been, I haven't had little kids for so long. And I, I, I honestly don't know if we had a pinatas at, at any of our kids' parties, but they seem so like, you know, I guess violent. <laughs> as we learn that, as Michael says, his fate will be involved being sort of the most grotesque version of a pinata one, one could imagine. You know, it is such an interesting discussion of what happens after we die. They're already dead, but then there's sort of like this second death that Michael's going to get of eternal torture of his molecules and the and it, and and it, I actually thought it was so fascinating the way he kind of broke it down right his soul is going to be broken up and his essence and then what's left of his body and I started thinking you know that what's left of his body is going to turn into a pinata but if your soul is gone and your essence is gone like what is your body right like can it feel anything apparently according to the theology of the good place this is a very specific picture of I guess the afterlife of the afterlife um and of, of what happens to you and, and maybe not the most comforting one if people are asking, you know, what happens to us after we die? You can live in a neighborhood with endless frozen yogurt or you know, your essence can be poured on hot diamonds. But it's making me think of also of a couple things, which is, and I'm now wondering just on the spot whether this is where the, the idea of the eternal shriek comes from. There is a an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, I've said that like we're only going to talk like Torah, Talmud, good place, like no freewheeling over all of pop culture ever, but I'm totally breaking this rule. I'm not a Star Trek guy at all, but there's this uh, thing where the Klingons, when they when they lose someone, gather around the body and they shriek. Have you seen this, Rebecca? You you are not speaking my language, I have no, to well, say. Anyway, what happens when, so when a Klingon, I guess, is uh, dies, the, the Klingons who are present, they gather around the body, they shriek, 
And then they say, you know, just dispose of this. It's a mere shell. It's so different from the Jewish idea of how we take care of a body after after someone dies and the soul, so to speak, is not in there anymore. I'm just wondering whether there's some, uh, I'll have to go track this down if there's a, a reference there. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's really interesting because Eleanor goes back in this episode to her full on, I'm so excited when I can figure out ethical loopholes thing, you know, whatever she said, like, who's, who's got ethics now? You know, she flings in Chidi's face and he's like, no, that's, and, and Chidi is back in his, like, everything you're saying to me is just so awful. Lies are like tigers. They are bad. Right. <laughs> A Chinese proverb. I love that. And also like the... some people like tigers, you know, it's better in the original Mandarin. <laughs> and yeah. I think which is it's a great uh, trick I guess that they play on us because it we're so not expecting this admission at the end from Eleanor I mean this is the it looks like and and I guess you know spoiler alert it's not but it looks like this is the turning point but it's definitely an inflection point in the season and it's you know I had forgotten that that was the ending of this episode when I wanted to do this episode and I I was like oh my god I forgot that I was I was shocked. I didn't remember that that she had even done that. And in some ways, right, all of Chidi's moral philosophy and ethics had had seeped into her. But I think actually, in in my viewing of the show, my reading of it, the thing that really affects her is her relationship with Chidi. She's mm. when she's right before she stands up, she says, "I love you, ma'am." What she's reacting to is not the books and the ethics that Chidi has been teaching her, but actually seeing another human being's pain and deciding to react to that, which is very different than the Eleanor we've seen on earth so far, right? She is able to see other people's pain and not care that much about them. And I feel like for her, this is the first time when she looks at Chidi and sees that he like, he can't take it. It's going to eat him alive forever that she just feels like she can't be that person anymore. It's a real Yom Kippur light bulb change moment change moment for her. And I agree with you. I think it is an inflection point in the series. And I think it's it's probably one of the things that really starts Eleanor and Chidi on their path together, as opposed to him feeling like, well, I made you this promise. And so I have to keep it now that she does this amazing thing really for him, not so much for her. Wow. That is so cool. I think that probably will serve as the perfect segue into digging into something in the episode. Yeah, so when I was thinking about this episode, the text that really stood out to me was a text from Kituvot in the Talmud, which basically talks about the question of like, can you tell your colleague that you like their hideous boots? The Talmud asks, what should you say to a bride and uh, on her wedding day? And, and they basically come down on the idea that you should always tell a bride that she looks beautiful, even if she doesn't, right? That there is no, there's nothing to be gained from telling a bride that she doesn't look beautiful. And so they, the rabbis kind of endorse the, the little white lie for the sake of preserving this other person's dignity. And we know that the rabbis think that human dignity is very important, right? They talk about embarrassing someone as being like killing them, that you don't want, you, you want to avoid public embarrassment at all costs. And so I think, right, Chidi, this tiny lie about the boots. I mean, yes, it spans, it spawns like a whole thing, right? With the boots and the surgery and everything. But this little lie about the boots eats at him, right? And who among us hasn't said like, oh, I like your shirt, right? When we haven't necessarily meant it or, oh, you look really nice today when we haven't necessarily meant it. And 
I guess I fall on the side of the rabbis to think like, where is the harm in that, right? In, in helping someone feel better about, about themselves, especially if you think about a bride, there's nothing that bride can do about it. She looks how she looks. She's probably already dressed and she's probably at her wedding. And if you go up to her and you say like, oh, you look really bad. What, what is she going to do about it? Nothing, nothing. There's nothing to be gained. And so I think, you know, the, the boots sort of went a little far because he bought cheaty boots and then he wore his boots all the time. And, but I think most of the time our little white lies do not go, do not spin out in that direction. So this is making me wonder why we even think of them as lies. Why do we even have a question about it if it's so clear? This idea of sort of a social nicety, it's a, it's a question, right? There, it, it's, it's a fine line between I'm not telling you the truth and I'm doing something to kind of preserve your dignity, our community, our relationship. I don't know that you should go up, you should avoid going up to someone and be like, you know, there's a huge hole in the back of your shirt. You should, you should tell people that even if there's nothing they can do about it because you don't want them going around, you know, with their shirt all ripped up if they don't know, if they don't know it, right? They, they might try to fix it. But telling a bride she looks beautiful, that strikes me as a pretty harmless lie. And maybe it's not even a lie. Maybe it's really a, a way of preserving relationships. So I wonder if the calculation, though, would be, I'm just going to take the devil's advocate position for a minute, that if people, if people know that that's how you act, then, then people are going to start uh, factoring that into how they interpret things you say in relationships. And maybe like at the, in the best case, they'll be like, OK, we don't really talk about how anybody looks. So whenever, whenever we have those kinds of questions, we're assuming that's just like a, a social convention. It's not actually a, a set of conversations with any content. Nobody ever means anything when they say you're beautiful. But, you know, when they say, did I when you talk about other things like that's where truth and, and lies matter. And I think that that for Kant, I forget if Kant is explicitly referenced, I think possibly in the episode, says that like any time you lie about anything, yeah, you might you might have a gain in the moment or even a gain in this particular relationship that you have, but you're basically harming the ability of anybody to trust anything and everything is built on the kind of contract that's saying words to each other is and that's why he says you know tough as it is you should tough it out and you should not say beautiful to someone you don't think is beautiful isn't that why everyone hates moral philosophy professor <laughs> well i you know that actually also threw me into a bit of a crisis of does that mean everybody hates rabbis who talk about moral philosophy it, possibly uh we rabbis also suffer from this although as my teacher rabbi sharon browse always talks about you should uh make people a little bit uncomfortable in, in synagogue with your with your truth, that you shouldn't only come to, to synagogue or really to any religious experience because you want to be told how great everything is and how great you are. Um, and I think coming out of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, like, yeah, that's, that's an important message that we clergy should take into our hearts, which is that it's not our job to tell everybody how great they are all the time, but also that there are moments when it does more good than harm, which is often how I like to look at the world, to be kind to someone. And, and something I talk about with my kids a lot is how do you deliver a message, right? There's a lot of different ways you can deliver a message and maybe it's not a lie, but you are thinking about how your message will land with that person, like guarding your tongue, shmirat halashon, a major principle in Judaism to really think about how is the other person going to receive this? Because I think the 
flip side of, of what you and Kant are talking about is if you go around being mean to people all the time or, you know, quote unquote, telling them the truth all the time, they may not want to hear anything from you because they experience you in such a difficult way and you put them in such a difficult emotional place that they can't hear anything from you, the good or the bad. And I think one of the things that good rabbis and good spiritual leaders do is deliver messages in the way people can hear them. Even if they're difficult messages, they are given in such a way that will make people think about it and will not close people off and have people think, well, this isn't about me. You want people to be able to hear a message and think, well, maybe actually that is about me. What you're saying is that the audience for sure matters and maybe the context in which people are, are hearing your message matters. And the, the truth value, quote unquote, of what you're saying isn't the only factor in that. It's how it's going to be received. And that's not entirely dependent on you and your intentions. One of my kids is, um, he really cares very passionately about the environment and the planet and all the terrible things that we're doing to the planet. Um, and he can be a little bit of an extremist and say like, human, there should not be any humans on the planet because humans are bad for the planet. And, you know, I say to him like, that, that might be true, right? There is truth to that, that if human beings did not live on the planet, the planet would be in better shape. But given that we live here, right, what are the messages that we can say about how we might help our earth that people might be able to hear and do something about as opposed to just saying, well, if only we weren't here, everything would be so much better. And if I may give a little plug, um, our uh, the teens from the synagogue where I work, Central Synagogue, gave an amazing Devar Torah on Yom, Kippur, on Yom Kippur about the book of Jonah and the way in which we are being called to wake up to the climate crisis that you can find on Central Synagogue's YouTube page. Um, and I think one of the things we talk to them a lot about is how are you going to deliver this message so that the people in the congregation will hear what you're saying, not as a scolding, but as a call to action. And I think they did a brilliant job. You know, the last thing you said also suggests that when you talk to someone, it's not just about describing the truth, but it's about what will result from whatever statement you make, the purpose of saying anything that's a judgment about something that's gone on or a judgment about that person is is forward from there. It's not just now, a snapshot of now. And I think that's actually one of the problems with cheating. He might be a brilliant moral philosophy professor, but he's not very good at context or nuance. He's an extremely black and white person. It is never okay to lie, right? He says, never, ever, 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 ever. You know, he wakes up his girlfriend in the middle of the night over the boots. That, <laughs> that, that feels like a deal breaker to me. Um, but, you know, never, ever, ever okay to lie, I think it shuts down the conversation. It makes it hard to engage if you say like, no, never this, always that. The world just isn't like that. It's not black and white. It's so nuanced. And I think one of the things that's amazing about The Good Place is that they are interested in tackling that question of nuance. What does it mean to, to end up in the good place versus the bad place? Is there a nuanced understanding of the good place and the bad place? The answer at the end of the series is really yes. So Chidi in particular has been enlisted in this lie about Eleanor for a good long time now. And it sort of looks like that was the right play for a while. I mean, that had to, there's no way Eleanor was going to confess at the beginning if, if that was what was supposed to happen. And it really took being in this situation where the lie was important 
and it was uh, it's kind of but it was still unstable i mean it was probably right for chidi to protect her in these particular ways and i don't think any harm it turns out i mean there was sinkholes and i think uh, glenn or whoever who was stuck covering i mean there was some suffering along the way from different people but in the scheme of things it it sort of looks like contrary to his own philosophy that that he did i don't know if it's not the right thing at least he did something by lying for a while that was okay and you sort of wondered i think at the cliffhanger at the end of the show was he the was he finally going to break and be the one to stand up and say okay i have to tell the truth it's her and i've been a, i don't know if he would have said and i've been I've been an, a willing accomplice or an unwilling accomplice because there was so much facial in the episode where where she's for the most part Eleanor is kind of reveling in how they're getting away with all this and he is in such pain. I love when she describes his, his turtling up, you know, shrinking into his shirt and all that, and his his grown. It's just really peak cheaty, I think. Um, but you think he's he might be the one who's going to come out with it, and he doesn't. It's, it's so much better than it's her. I think if Chidi were going to confess, he was going to confess that it was him. I don't I don't know that Chidi necessarily has it in him to like point an accusing finger at Eleanor, but it's so much more satisfying, right? That she looks at everything and she says, no, 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 it, it was me. At the beginning of the episode, you have Michael and he's listing all of his, all the things he did and then the exact consequence, right? That happened. He's like, there wasn't enough shrimp and then the flying shrimp came and, you know, and got me and, and there wasn't this. And so this happens. Right. And I think that's in some ways the theology of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's like, I will do this and God will do this. Right. I was a good person. So I get in the book of life. So Michael is presenting us with this idea of like, I did this bad thing. So this exact bad thing happened to me when Eleanor gets up and admits that it was her right? She's not doing it because this exact bad thing happened or this exact consequence is in front of her. She doesn't know what the consequences are of her admitting this bad thing that she's done, right? Of, of being in the wrong place. But she's doing it because either like Chidi's moral philosophy lessons have been swirling around in her brain and she's, she has it now, or because she's noticed at going back to what we were talking about earlier, that this is causing Chidi pain and she doesn't want to do that anymore. So I want to mess a little bit with the understanding of this quote from the Talmud that you brought, and we'll put the whole text in the notes. But my understanding is that in this situation of what's the song you should sing in front of a bride as you're dancing, and I want to sort of make note of the sexist context in which this thing is described. But And by the way, the actual quote itself is extremely ableist because it also talks about like the problems with a bride who is blind or anything, right? And that those people couldn't possibly be attractive. So we'll just stipulate up front that the rabbis had some problems with both like sexism and ableism. Absolutely. And so the position, I think, of Beit Hillel is that every bride should hear the same message, which is basically, as I understand it, uh, inner, inner beauty and outer beauty. And Beit Shammai take the position that you should come up with some actual descriptions of that bride. Not that you should say, you know, you're you're ugly and you're a horrible person, but that you should pick some actual characteristics of this bride and speak those things. I think the problem that Beit Hillel has is that if you don't say beautiful bride, but you say you are the kindest soul I've ever met, then the bride is saying, are you saying I'm not I'm not beautiful. I don't right. It's like, either. I want to set you up with someone. They have a really great personality. <laughs> and which makes me think that, again, the the issue isn't sort of between these these proclaimers or singers and this bride, but it's the environment that they're in. People don't just rate, rate your, they don't just take the, they don't just assess the truthfulness of what you're saying based on you and them, but they're 
there's a whole set of conventions around how we talk. And if you deviate from them, then people wonder what you're saying, even though you had the intention. So if you're Beit Shammai, you're like, I really, I really wrote like, I wrote you a song about you, you know, for this wedding. And other people are like, I just want to hear, you know, here comes the bride or whatever it is. <laughs> like, why? Well, why I think you also, you know, what you're saying about context is important. Like weddings are very fraught, right? And they're very much about, especially, you know, for the bride and the groom, like about how do you look and the dress and the veil and the makeup, right? Like that's that's a big part of getting ready for, for weddings. And so, you know, that it may be that in that context, you need that particular formula, right? Whereas in a different context, you might not need it. You, you in a one-on-one setting, you might be able to say to someone like, you are the kindest, nicest person I've ever met. Like, I'm so grateful that you're in my life. And they would hear that as being like an amazing compliment. But at their wedding, they want to hear, you know, your dress is really beautiful. You did a great job picking it out, right? And and it's a little bit about, as you said, as you said, the context. And, you know, if you read a little further on this, on the same page of Gamara, they talk about that they would sing to brides in the West, that they were comparable to a graceful Ibex, which I don't think anyone in 2021 would like <laughs> to hear as a compliment. But maybe, you know, again, context, right? That was perhaps a great compliment of brides at that at that time. Uh, to be compared to a graceful ibex. So I'm wondering, in the situation of Chidi and his and his colleague, that Chidi, who we know believes that lies are wrong, feels in the moment that he should say something nice about the boots. And partly it's that he he really thinks it's just limited to that moment. He doesn't realize that he's gonna get, he's gonna get boots, or that there's gonna be some possible deathbed implications of this. And I'm wondering whether. A, a, a world would be better in which, in which people would just speak, you know, would just speak, find the actual truthful words to say, even at a wedding that would make the bride and the groom feel complimented. I have to say, I was at, I was at a wedding recently where I feel like the people who got up said such beautiful and distinctive things about the the bride and the groom that were so true. I, I myself just felt like so uplifted by that. And and now obviously there were also the, the regular songs that were played by the band, the Horas, and that's that's kind of the standard stuff. There were I don't think there were words other than Simintov and Mazeltov, but I was just so impressed by the the care. I would have been happy to be at a wedding, I think anyway, but I was even more happy to hear distinctively wonderful things about this couple. And I myself was thinking about this because what, what I did on the beginning of Yom Kippur in the synagogue that I was uh, that I serve and that I was addressing was saying that you know we have been for this past you know year plus talking in such critical terms about the world and a lot of the people in it but but another way to look at this past year is to think about how many life-saving acts there have been that you that you here collectively have done and actually just pounding our chest and confessing wrongs would in some sense be a lie it wouldn't be the truth about the year and i encourage people to try to pair uh, pair those things up and and i found actually when i continued my service after that i felt totally differently about the words i've been saying in a very kind of confessional self-critical mode uh, probably every other year and i felt like so I, I don't think i was lying i think i was just helping to complete the picture a little bit. I didn't, obviously, I don't think I was lying at all, but I mean, I, I felt that the picture wasn't complete, even though there are plenty of critical things. And obviously, in Yom Kippur, we're there to to do that, too. So I kind of like, you know, the Beit Shammai approach of selecting and setting an example of of finding truth, of, of starting with, is there a truthful thing to say 
that will also be appropriate to the to the situation and not just let me default to the standard things that people want to hear or expect to hear. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think as a general rule, you want to find specific things. Eddie Carr in Los Angeles, where I used to work, for every aliyah, whoever, whichever rabbi is, is up there with the person coming to bless the Torah, they say something specific about that person, right? If you're up there because you got a new job or because you know, it's your birthday or a yard site, the rabbis will talk about the person. And if you know them, it's great because you're like, look at my friend getting this great honor. And if you don't know them, it's actually like such a beautiful way to have a little bit of insight into who are the people sitting in your community that it's, it, it can be very anonymous if you are new or if you don't know that many people or if you're only there for the first time or, or whatever it is. And so hearing something in specific, not just like, this is John, he's a rabbi, but hearing like particular attributes about the kind of work that you do or the kind of person that you are or a little bit about your family or, you know, someone who you're remembering, that that can be really powerful. And I guess, I don't know if Chidi had said like, wow, red is one of my favorite colors, but I think those boots are very ugly. Would that have been better than what he said? Maybe. Or I think sometimes that kind of thing comes across as a little bit disingenuous. It's like, you don't want to tell me outright that you hate my boots. So you're like, you're searching for something really good to say about them. And so, you know, there might be a difference between kind of like what you say to someone in a moment where you're honoring them, like at their wedding or with an aliyah, or, you know, as you and I have had experience at a funeral, right? You, where you want to say something specific and not generic, but then the other times you might just want to be like, wow, those boots are really red and leave it at that. (laughs) In Chidi's situation, we learn at the end that he's been carrying this lie dynamic around for three years, and it doesn't it doesn't really cleanse him. It doesn't feel very cleansing when he blurts it out after his colleague uh, turns out to, you know, to be okay in the hospital, which makes me wonder whether like these social lies, we want to call them that, have a, a short half-life, like if you can carry them off and they don't really disturb the the time-space continuum for very long, then they're the right thing to do. But if they start to spiral out of hand and affect your love life and everything like that, then then maybe that's bad. But you know, I, I, I I was, when you were saying that, that reminded me so much of like the work we want to do on Yom Kippur and in the high holiday season, which is you want to come out of Yom Kippur, not carrying around that lie anymore. Right. You want to have figured out how you either by apologizing or, letting it go or whatever the mechanism is, the the Jewish calendar is set up so that you're not carrying that around with you all the time. There, there is, there is, first of all, there's relative guilt, right? Like it's not the same to tell someone you like their boots when you don't than to punch them in the face, right? Like those two things are not the same in Judaism, but also like we have a mechanism of tshuva of, and part of the experience is yes, asking for forgiveness, but also trying to forgive yourself and, and, really move on with your life, that you should not be carrying those things around forever and ever. So Eleanor's approach to lying, I guess, and truth-telling is to continually assess the impact on her and others. I mean, first on herself, you know, is this lie going to help me, hopefully without harming anybody? And then, you know, she establishes that they can uh, terminate Janet, and that's actually not going to harm Janet or anybody, so she can continue to cover that up. And then 
Uh, but then when she when she hears that her the implications of keeping her own lie to herself are th- for Michael to suffer eternally, she wants to come up with a way to lie better. Just like I think in the previous chapter that I was talking to Dan about, she wants to keep a promise without actually keeping it. She wants to tell the truth sort of without without doing that. And, and she's very attuned in, in certain ways. And that's... Um, you know, sometimes she's fine with that and, and uh, kind of ex- exults in that. And sometimes she's troubled by that. And she makes well, her- one of her greatest quotes I thought from today was she said, I want a perfect solution to all my problems that I didn't have to work for. Yeah. Right. And and yeah, if we don't, you know, we all want that but it doesn't always show up that way. Well, and she's also totally working it. I mean, she's she's in a way working harder than Chidi, who's not. He has an absolute principle, but he's not really, he's, he's suffering more than she is, but he's not really working on it. He knows that he's promised Eleanor that he's going to protect her or take care of her, and, but he hasn't come up, he really hasn't offered any solutions. Actually, th- is this the first episode where they haven't actually had a, a lesson? The only thing that, that I discovered on, the, on a blackboard was back on Earth, this uh, set of things about apocalypse and, and stuff. <laughs> Did you see that there was Jewish... Uh... There was Jewish apocalypse stuff on the board too. Absolutely. The background. So yeah, I mean, Chidi is um, right. He's got a moral principle, but he he's not. Uh, he's got one. You know, it's not really adaptable in a way. It either work. It, it either works or it doesn't. And when it when it's not being applied or nobody's going with him along it, he just is suffering. He doesn't even. I don't think he says stomachache here too, does he? He's just like his whole I don't being think so. is in is in pain. He's having a he's whole he's he's made entirely of stomach in this episode. It's interesting because I think what's happening here, right, is two of Chidi's strongly held moral principles are coming into conflict with one another, right? Don't lie and keep your promises. Mm. And that is like such a complicated question of what happens when you can't resolve everything in a in a neat bow and part of the reason probably that Chidi like basically had only dysfunctional relationships on earth was that he couldn't handle the conflict between two deeply held principles right and and I think a lot of what's in Jewish text is about trying to resolve conflicts between two two deeply held and important and important ideas and important principles right that's what that's what the rabbis are arguing about, right? Is it this one or is it that one? In in a lot of cases, right? And and even in this case, Hillel and Shammai are they have they're just looking at this bride with two different principles. One is don't shame someone, especially on their wedding day, and the other is tell the truth. And how do we reconcile those two those two principles, both of which are important? So Chidi says, you know, toward the end of the episode about himself, I just. I'm just not a person who can lie. Like that's bad for my soul, regardless of what it's going to do functionally in the world or whether what I say is kind of adjusted to this situation. And I really admired that moment because I also think it's a very truthful thing to say about this issue, right? I don't want to be calculating all the time. Well, which maybe makes it too simple. I don't think he's just saying it's too hard work. It's 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 too hard work for me to keep track of the things I say. I think he's saying like this is a quality. Truthfulness is important to to my being, and that feels very genuine. And I I guess I admire that as a as a position that has to be stated. Because again, when even when we when we do as we're doing and justify adjusting our presentation of the truth or withholding it to situations, we're still saying it's not necessarily the truth. We still still preserve that label. You started off by saying that Eleanor is responding ultimately not to arguments, but to Chidi and her and her care for her. I think that's so beautiful. You want to say any more about how you think that operates with her? Well, 
I think, you know, one thing we learn about all of the major human characters is that they basically could not, they didn't have functional relationships on earth. And so in some ways we're seeing people who could not figure out how to relate to other people in their lives on earth, all of a sudden they are figuring out some of the ways of relating to one another in the after in the afterlife, right? That's part of what I think makes this interesting is they are moving out of their stereotypes and into a more complex understanding of, of what it means to be in relationship. And they that continues to grow a lot over over the course of the series. And, and I actually, I thought one of the other really powerful moments of this episode, which comes right before Eleanor's admission is Michael's apology to Tahani for what he said at, at the retirement party. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the world about like, what is an apology and what is a good apology and a bad apology. And that was actually, it was a pretty good apology. You know, he took responsibility for what he did and he expressed the ways he would try to do better in the future. And, you know, even though he's not one of the human characters, I think this question of like, what does it mean to be in a relationship with another human being, or I guess another being, right? That comes up for Janet too, as we move through, um, as we move through the series. And I, I think this is really, I mean, the good place is about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is about how do we create strong relationships with other people? And this moment for me is Eleanor really, at least for a moment, understanding what it means to be friends, right? To be a good friend and to care about someone in the way that she cares about herself, right? It's it's love your neighbor as yourself. Eleanor loves herself, right? She thinks she's really great. And she is able to find a way to love Chidi enough to put him out of his misery. Wow. I think we're going to have to a lot come back to this because, you know, it's, a, it's this huge chuva moment, this moment of reckoning and and doing the right thing in such a big way for Eleanor. And you're injecting this factor about how much it's it's not only about her and has come about not just because of her. And I think that's, you know, that's a that's a huge teaching. You know, as as we're wrapping up, this is not about Chuba or even particularly deep, but I just I, I am a baker at uh, in my in my spare time. And I just really loved Flan Voyage and Retirement Chocolate Cake. I thought that was like, it's just really funny. And I was thinking, and then I started thinking to myself, like, if I was throwing a good place themed party, like, what would I, what would I make at my good place themed party? And uh, I would like to try the retirement chocolate cake. We have to definitely figure out a way to do a, a good place dream party or maybe a series of them, a retirement and, and other things. We'll have to, God willing, in person, and may, or maybe we'll have some kind of, uh, virtual events where we can invite people to to bring their favorite good place theme. <laughs> that would be that would be really fun um different good place themed foods frozen yogurt you know <laughs> it's a full cell phone battery flavored frozen yogurt what is that <laughs> <laughs> this is a special moment i want to say in the show and in the podcast from a jewish point of view i believe there are 50 episodes of the good place this is number seven so it's kind of the completing of a cycle i believe that makes is this our Shemitah year our Shemitah, our seventh sabbatical year um uh, inflection point so it's great to be doing that with you and heading into this year where we can continue to have the good place with us as we go through a, what i hope will be a special year all together thank you rebecca for another great conversation thanks for having me 
And thank you for listening to another episode of Tove. We truly appreciate your making this conversation part of your day. We've got show notes, including links to the Klingons and the teens from Central Synagogue, as well as the Talmudic text we discussed and some deeper dives into lying at tovegoodplace.com. That's T-O-V goodplace, all one word. If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe and give a rating and let other people know about it. And if you've got some ideas for how to make it more fun or more interesting, drop me a note at tove at tovegoodplace.com. You can follow Rabbi Rebecca Rosenthal on Instagram at Rabbi Rebecca Bakes. And I'm John Spirosavet on Twitter at RabbiJS3 or on my blog, RabbiJohn.net. A shout out to our home bases, Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire, and Central Synagogue in Manhattan. Check us out if you're in our areas or try out our online programs. And finally, in sort of the words of Mark Evan Jackson from the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.